ready well, when you are. Let's crack on then. Welcome to another podcast. <laughs> another episode. We've got Ben Mercer with us this week. Um, a good friend of ours who has uh, recently published, self-published a book uh, about his time in France uh, playing professional rugby. So it'd be great to hear from him. Welcome, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me. Also, webinar extraordinaire. <laughs> Lockdown How, webinar uh, series. Yeah, you're very familiar with doing remote chats and conversations. And I was listening to you do an interview last week as well for, for one of your things. So it's uh, it's becoming the norm, right? Yeah, but I'm on the other end of it now. So yeah, I'll have to um, maybe maybe pipe up a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> the interviewee. Well, yeah, let's. Um, I'll put I'll put my little 25 minute timer on as usual just to keep keep our conversations nice and sweet. Good good amount of time for a commute or something. I always used to get frustrated doing a, a commute and then it being like 35, 40, 50 minutes and I wouldn't finish the topic before I, I got there. So that's why we try and do it this way. Um, but yeah, let's maybe have a little conversation about your process of like get publishing a book on your own, really. How yeah, did it come well, about? Um, so like reading's always been my favorite thing. I mean, if you're, I, I played pro professional rugby and I didn't play the highest level, but I played kind of second division in England. And then I ended up going to France, which is what the book's about. But, you know, actually, even before sport, what I really love has been reading, love books. I've, I've, I was always that guy on the bus reading stuff. I had my Kindle loaded up. And France is perfect. So we had so many long away trips, I could really bash through a load of books. And it's just like a kind of long-held ambition of mine that I, I didn't do anything about. I never did, um, you know, I never actually set about pursuing it in any, in any sort of way, in any, with any rigor, with any kind of uh, planning whatsoever. So, um, yeah, I... I sort of dabbling in some writing uh, and then as I was practicing more and more uh, I was I kind of built up the the idea the concept behind the book over time and then I eventually I thought well you know why not you might as well oh. and what's it like what is it what is that process of going do I do I find a publisher someone publish it for me or do I do it myself and like yeah how, how does that all come about so firstly, I was kind of writing roughly for my own benefit. So I was, I was doing some rugby blogging. I was getting paid a very small amount of money to do. And in the meantime, I was also just writing down uh, my own little kind of essays or my own little fragments based around my experiences that weren't appropriate for the blog, but they were good practice for me to kind of improve my writing. And as I carried on, I got this concept sort of clear in my head. And I thought, right, you know, this, this hasn't been done, I don't think, in a, in a way. I, I felt like I had a different perspective. And when you, when you go to a publisher, they've all got different requirements. So most of them, they either want to see a book proposal, which is a pretty serious document. It's not like a kind of one page PDF. It's like a 50 page. This is exactly what this book will look and sound like. This is exactly who it's for. This is, you know, why I'm qualified to write this book. Here's a sample. You know, sometimes it's, um, they want a kind of very big chunk of writing. So it might be a hundred pages as a sort of sample. So what I did, I, I, I wrote and I got these ideas down and I ended up with a kind of, yeah, with a pretty decent sample um, and used that to kind of go to publishers and, well, through an agent for the most part. 
and I was speaking to different people and they were looking for deals for me but I was always I was always attracted to the idea of self-publishing so I wouldn't have to compromise on what I wanted to say or how quickly I could do it so what traditional publishing there's a whole machinery you go through so because they know exactly what they're doing there's loads of people involved with your book it's kind of a big project of which you're just you know one initial part of in a way and uh it just takes longer so some of the advice i had from an agent was that you know if you did want to get it done quicker then actually you're better off doing it on your own yeah so cool I, and I guess there's like there's other things to think about because not only do publishers sort of actually physically publish your book, but they they then do all the other stuff that is like the the marketing. They do promotion stuff. Like, was that part of the decision making to be able to be like, oh, can I do this bit on my own? No, definitely. I think because I've been playing uh, I've been playing professional rugby. That was the only real job I'd ever had. You, you, everyone says you're sort of very rich in soft skills, but you don't really know how to do anything. And um, I had an English lit degree, which very similarly is a sort of badge of smarts, but you know, you don't really, you don't actually know how to do anything that an employer might pay for. You're useless, basically. You are, you are. You're, um, you're qualified <laughs> for everything and nothing, is the sort of gag. And um, I, I really like the idea of being able to kind of create something that was totally on me. And it was a really good opportunity for me to learn a load of skills, like you say, around marketing, around design. I, I, I wouldn't have to compromise on any things that a publisher might actually, they probably would know a lot better than me about them, but I wouldn't have to compromise on things like a cover design. I, I could commission something that I was happy with and I could move at a pace that I wanted to move at and I wouldn't have to um, have my manuscript, you know, so I wouldn't have to sort of bow to an editor that I hadn't picked and that, uh, that might make a load of recommendations I didn't agree with. I was like, you know, I was in charge for better or worse. Yeah, kind of, kind of nice to keep all of the like creative control for yourself, really, rather than let someone else who thinks maybe they know better to like sort of chip in and tell you how to write it or tell you how how it should look. No, definitely, uh, and I was I was quite careful to kind of do my own um, research in terms of looking at other books that I that I thought were good and what I liked about the sort of genre I was in, which was really sort of sports autobiography, sports memoir. Um, I, I was quite kind of clear about what I thought was good and bad about that genre and found some books that I, I thought worked for various reasons and tried to kind of model what I was doing on them to some extent while trying to keep the kind of perspective that I had that I felt was different. Yeah, that's cool. Maybe like it'd be good to chat with Adam a sec about like the, the cover design because obviously being a designer and like Adam have you ever done anything like that before or because Ben you just had someone come and like do a, do a design for you right yeah yeah um I I got really lucky so it's one of those things as I was going through the project you know to begin with I kept it to myself that I was doing it and then once I hit a sort of once I'd done about 30,000 words, which was about a third of the book, maybe a little bit less, I, I opened up to my teammates and I said, oh, look, you know, I've been doing this, I've already got this amount, like what, what could I, I kind of canvassed their opinions. But obviously the cover was right down the track. So I had the kind of manuscript I was waiting for, uh, for it to be edited. And then I started talking about the book to, to far, far more people. And actually that's how I ended up coming across all the people I, I had um, to help me. So that's how I found my editor. That's how I found um, 
the book cover design it was actually through uh, like a girl I met in a nightclub who who asked my number and we're t- and we're chatting and we're just chatting about what we're up to she was actually a fashion designer and I said oh I'm looking for a book cover design at the minute she said oh my mate Adam's really good he's um he's a designer but he works in like craft drinks um yeah and I got chatting to him and after a kind of I'd had a very low cost very unsuccessful dabble into the world of Fiverr you know I thought I'd go the other (laughs) way and find someone (laughs) uh someone who was a bit more expensive but who who just nailed it straight out the park almost Adam have you ever have you ever picked up any work from a nightclub uh, not the sort of work I can talk about on a podcast. Um, no, no, weirdly not. I mean, I don't have the chisel jaw that Ben's got to get people, like, get jobs through people giving me their numbers. So uh, I'll have to work. <laughs> Lovely on that beard, one. though. Lovely beard. Thanks. Man. <laughs> um, like, first and foremost, the cover's beautiful. Like, it's a really nice bit of design. Um, and sort of, I had a quick look at some of the stuff that you've done in the book before this podcast, and like. The cover's spot on, like really lovely. Um, yeah, so I've I've never done a book cover in like such a design sense. It's usually combining stuff for for a, a project, so usually involving a photographer and then then text. Um, so nothing is as as nice as this. I mean, I'm a big fan of uh, poster and like DVD and uh, like uh, video cover art. And I think that one of my biggest critiques of all of that is everyone just sticks a photo and some text on a book or just has a, a piece of text as a title, which is fine. But I really miss the art and the creativity that goes into a cover. Um, so to have something that is so instantly iconic, but beautiful as well, I think yeah, really works. It's really impressive. It's lovely. If for no we'll other reason, that. get it for the cover. We'll put a link in so you can see it and maybe even buy it yeah. um, if you fancy. But was it was it... Was there a, a temptation, Ben, or or were people saying that it's just kind of like, yeah, we'll get a photographer, we'll get a picture of you in like a tight rugby shirt, and uh, <laughs> and that's going to sell some books? Or um, yeah, how how did that work? Because it feels like a lot of the lot of the um, a lot of other pros who write books tend to go down that avenue. So yeah, that's um, firstly thank you, Adam. That's really kind of you to say about the the cover. I was delighted with it when. Um when I got the first version, it's, and the, the final version is only very slightly different from what um, other Adam first came up with. But the, yeah, one of the conventions of the genre, you're right, Ant, is that because most of these books are, you know, a famous kind of recognisable athlete of some sort or, you know, maybe a politician or you know, in that sort of memoir genre, they tend to be a photo with, yeah, some text over the top. And... I thought for me, as as a sort of unknown rugby player in the grand scheme of things, that that would be ridiculous and be kind of hubristic and silly. And also I saw it as a way to differentiate myself and the, the, the kind of perspective of the book is that this is a perspective you haven't heard before. And so I wanted it to look unlike the other books in the genre. Um, mm. By the same token, there was actually a rugby book uh, by Ben Ryan, who was the Fiji Sevens Olympic coach. and he had a graphic design cover because he was the coach, he wasn't the player. Um, and the and the cover of his book kind of communicated that it was set in Fiji for the most part. And I I also toyed with the title of my book. So I had a working title, which, um, which was Lost in France, which I knew wasn't um, my final title, but I felt that I needed to communicate that the book was set in France somehow. 
And in the end, I didn't get it into the title or the subtitle. I, I used the cover to kind of communicate that. Um, and the last thing was, it was interesting what you said about film posters and things like that. I was really keen for the, the final the final product to, to look beautiful. And, you know, although Adam, you were very kind about my jawline, I, I felt that, <laughs> you know, just a photo of me would have a bit less sort of artistic merit than, than something that somebody could come up with, like a really striking graphic cover I felt could be really a kind of beautiful object in its own right. And I, I love that idea of it being, you know, you could kind of print it out and have it on your wall as a, as a sort of piece. And um, the last thing was actually the designer, he was used to craft drinks packaging. And obviously the sort of aim of that is to stand out on a shelf amongst a load of other similar products. And as I was going to self-publish on Amazon, I really needed it to stand out among a load of other books. So not only would it look different from the other sports books, um, just by virtue of not being a photo, but it would really stand out if they're all in a sort of row on Amazon. You'd be like, well, that one's different. Yeah, for sure. I was going to come on to that, actually, because it's a really interesting topic for designers, how the majority of things now have moved digital, so you don't necessarily have to compete with uh, film or products on shelf in the same way that you used to. But the fact that you still prioritise the visuals and that first moment, like it's, I call it the moment of truth when you see a product and you want to buy it or you see a book and you go, oh, I, I want to buy it. Still based on the cover, it's like they never judge a book by its cover. I completely agree with, but if you see a good cover, you want to look inside. Like if there's a boring cover, you don't care. So seeing that you're valuing the, the, the design and that first moment, you know that that's your hook to then get someone to read it. You're backing it up with, a, like, with good content. I think like it's it's just fascinating to see how that shift still applies despite you not being always in a physical setting. No, definitely. I felt it was really important, and um, you're right. It's it's the first thing anyone's going to see, and particularly in the first place. I I didn't have a profile, you know. I didn't have a big social following, and I didn't. I actually launched it with no reviews either, which was an error. But the the cover was really that is what everyone sees first, and I I was really keen for it to be not only different but you're right actually a kind of something beautiful in its own right that was you know to sort of satisfy my own artistic aims i suppose oh nice well um it was interesting you just saying then that you launched it without reviews and that was an error it, you know what have you learned from that and like how would you do the launch again if you if you had the chance well, actually, I sat on it for a long time, so I um, I made all my edits, I got it back, and then I kind of kept tinkering with it for a long time without really, um, without kind of making any appreciable difference to the final product. I mean, like, I, I tightened a few things up and I improved a few little bits, but really I was just prevaricating because I was a bit scared about releasing it. And the other thing was that I, I actually needed to format it properly, which is... Um, it might be a little bit tedious, but it's also a big part of self-publishing is that you you have to create the kind of file and the format of your manuscript in such a way that it displays properly when somebody downloads it or if they use the Amazon print on demand. So that was a kind of big hurdle to clear that was just in my way for a long time. I, I didn't really approach. And um, yeah, and so in the end, I just bought vellum which is a you know really good bit of software the, you can format the book for free there are various tools you can use google docs you can use pages and i did set about that but i saw it was going to take me ages that i was going to find it really irritating and i'd already prevaricated enough so i downloaded the software 
And then I was like, right, well, I've got no excuse now to not launch it. And I wanted, I wanted it to be out, you know, by December 2019. Uh, so, you know, anyone that might want to buy for Christmas could. But it just mm-hmm. meant that I hadn't got those kind of pre-release reviews from anybody. So, yeah, I basically sat on it for too long in the first place and then was in a rush to get it out. So I didn't have time for anybody to, um, to, actually, to actually read it apart from my friend and, you know, the editor. So... Yeah, if I did it again, I'd, I'd definitely get some, um, you know, send some copies out to people beforehand, but I just didn't have the time. But you've, I mean, it's done really well, hasn't it? It's topped a few, topped a few Amazon book lists. It's been nominated for, or you've, you, you, you've put forward to, for it to um, go to an award as well. Like it's done pretty well and, you know, all, all sort of generated by yourself and your own marketing and your own advertising, things like that. Like how how well's the book done and has it exceeded your expectations? No, it definitely exceeded expectations. I mean, like when when I first released it, I, I you know I didn't have any reviews. And when you go on Amazon, you, you look, you see the cover, and the next thing you see is the reviews. And if they're a zero, you think, well, you know, I might like the cover, but actually, I don't know about this. So I I made the digital copy free for a weekend. I think when I launched just to get some copies out there and get people reading it. So that got the kind of algorithm moving. You could see it kind of into the charts. Few people bought it. And then I had the first kind of two or three months where sales, you know, did okay. It sold sort of a few hundred each month, but, you know, nothing wild. And then there was a real tipping point once I reached kind of 20 positive reviews. Then it seemed like it kicked into a higher gear. And once it started moving in the charts, then I had some more success with my sort of social media posts and it started getting picked up and noticed by blogs. And so, yeah, there was a real tipping point past 20 reviews I found. I don't know if that's a significant number for a reason or not, but it, um, yeah, it the was... The magic 20. That's what they call yeah, it that was it. <laughs> but yeah, it's... Um, to begin with, there was a lot of kind of jumping into conversations on Twitter and telling people about it, you know, just having to go um, very hands-on in that respect. And uh, yeah, and then in, I looked into kind of startup methodology. I thought I'd run the book almost like a startup in, in some ways, doing things that don't scale, um, you know, because like a big author or a, a big name rugby player probably won't sit on Twitter and drop their book into every other conversation they see about kind of lower division rugby. But I had the time and that was another way I could stand out, I suppose, was that I was very contactable. And whenever anyone gets in touch, I try and make sure I get back to them within a reasonable amount of time and uh, foster those conversations and just generate like some real goodwill towards the project. And appear on your mate's podcasts. Yeah, I try and do them too. Well, you can't be doing too bad. You've gone from the 20 that was your leapfrog. You're on 186 reviews and you're just shy of five stars. So doing something right, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I hope, well, it's gone down better than I thought. I mean, in the first place, I was just happy to have, uh, to have done it, to be honest. To, it was, it was a long-held ambition. I was like the idea, oh, I'll write a book one day. And then to actually do that, get it out, it was, you know, some people bought it with, you know, it probably took me about a year. Could have been a little bit quicker if I'd, yeah, not sort of dilly-dallied at the end. But um, that felt like a success anyway, just to get the book out and I was pleased and, and all the rest of it. So the reception's just been real icing on the cake. Yeah, it's amazing. And I just wonder, like me and Adam were talking just a bit before about like doing your own projects, releasing something into the world, that moment where 
it goes from this project you've been squirreling away on, really proud of, finally get it done, release it and just sort of like let go and see, and see what happens and, and for it to be out there to be judged. Like how's, how's that, how was that experience for you? Yeah, it is weird because um, I released it in, yeah, kind of December time, like I said, and I probably actually finished most of it by the summer in a way, like most of the actual writing. And um, and now people are, people are obviously reading it and discovering it now. So there's quite a lot of distance between uh, when I was in the weeds with it and, and really dealing with the, the writing um, to now when people are discovering it for the first time. And so, yeah, I, f- I feel like it's quite a long way away now. It's quite a long time ago. But at the time, yeah, you're really... It was quite a revealing book to write because it was not only a bit behind the scenes of that kind of level of rugby, but it was a lot about me kind of personally and how I felt about those things. And so it was quite uh, nerve wracking to release it and just see how people were going to take it. But um, I think you get, you do get over that after a couple of months when, when you first get a couple of good reviews, you think, okay, cool. Like, you know, people are liking it. When you get a bad review, equally, you kind of, it's hard not to take them to heart, but um, <laughs> luckily the, the kind of positives outweigh the negatives in that respect. Yeah, uh, nice. Yeah, for sure. I, I think um, my, like, I've never thought about writing. Um, I, I'm very much a visual person rather than a writer because I can't write. But um, the thing that I think would stop me doing something like this would be that fear of, like, who who cares? Like, why does someone want to hear, like, what I've got to say? Like, what what took you over that barrier to go, I've got a story to tell and I want I want to share it? It's funny, I think you're right. And anyone who tells a story, and if that's, like, a comedian or... Um, if that's someone who is you know, writing a book and particularly a memoir it's a bit like there is that kind of act of intellectual arrogance in a way that you know oh yeah my perspective is important um, but I, I, I did feel that my own story aside all my friends were people you know in the other teams I've been in you know all my friends were people who'd had experiences like mine that weren't uncommon and without being too um, you know cheesy about it but I, I did feel like those are people no one ever hears about so there was a little bit of a sense of a broader mission for me uh, in that respect. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it just ticked so many boxes for me as a project because it was a sort of, it's a bit of an experiment. It was a bit of a kind of way of me sort of capping my time in rugby. It was a little bit of a thing that I thought actually people should hear about in terms of rugby fans, supporters kind of should know that there are a lot of these guys out there who who are living this kind of, year-to-year existence it's quite tough so yeah there, there are a few things like that where I um I did I I, I think they co- kind of coalesce quite nicely in the one project and um yeah yeah that was that no nice. what do you, what do like ex-teammates and thing people think of it like because whether they think they'd like to do similar thing or whether they just like seeing that you know their the part that they played in your story out there is must be quite interesting for them yeah, they're quite funny about it. So, because I, I canvassed my French teammates um, a bit, like, well, not the French guys, but the other foreigners who are there with me. And um, I think one of them now is quite keen, like, he's still playing, but maybe when he's done, he'd quite like to write something. I had a rugby agent contact me and say, oh, you know, that he really enjoyed it and that he'd potentially quite like to write something when he's done. And I think it's a bit like I, in the book I talk about when I was at school and there's an older kid who, um, who got a professional rugby contract. And although he was, he was better than me, he was right there and he managed it. And it just, that sense of possibility, 
is a lot more apparent when you know somebody who's done something because yeah it's one of those you know writing books is something other people do but obviously if you know somebody who's done it then you're like right well they've done it like you know why can't I and actually particularly with self-publishing and all the kind of tools that are available to you now it is really possible to do it um whether it's good or not is, is a different is a different question but yeah with enough kind of um wherewithal you know any, anyone can do it it's amazing I, I like before so i yeah i got a copy of your book and i didn't even realize that it, that it was a thing until we started chatting and you were like oh yeah it just prints it when you buy it i was just like that's incredible <laughs> it's blown my mind i don't that's been one of the things as well because self-publishing has all has a kind of from the do-it-yourself thing it's easy to be snobby about it because there isn't that gatekeeper effect and I did have some, you know, no publisher that I spoke to, I didn't really try very many, but nobody was interested in it from that respect. So I could have, I could have taken that as a no and not done it. But I thought actually, no, I, I'm going to do this anyway. Um, and yeah, there's, um, the gatekeeper thing is just, it's, it's something that everyone's taken as a, taken as read for a long time. And although they probably do stop a lot of dross coming onto the market, there, there are loads of self-publishing stories and they wouldn't have happened. You know, things like The Martian, um, I mean, Fifty Shades, I've not actually read, but you know, there are some big success stories from self-publishing that, uh, that people don't realize are self-published books or they began life as a self-published book. And yeah, it's, um, it's something that while it's probably harder to make something quality without the help of a publisher it doesn't mean that that quality doesn't exist somewhere and you're mm. right i think people don't know um how kind of good or how accessible it can be so with the print on demand it's like you know as a as a first time author with no profile i don't have to put any money down i don't have to buy you know 200 copies and keep them in my house and post them out and then you know potentially like alan partridge have to go and pulp them um you know there's no upfront cost to me in that respect so when somebody buys it amazon takes yeah a, a sort of slice for the the printing and the distribution and then we then take a slice of the sort of profit from each from each one as well and actually in self-publishing your share of the profits is much higher than it would be with a traditional publishing deal that's so no, great that's mate never we're, a bad we're, thing. Out of our, we're out of our time we, we we set ourselves a strict timeline on this podcast but um, yeah, it's been so great. What's what's like? What's in the pipeline for you next? I know you're doing lots of bits of writing and stuff. Have you got any big plans for future publications? I've got. It's one of those things. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very shiny object. I've got kind of too many ideas. I'm trying to spin a lot of plates and uh, and see where they go. But I mean, this first book originated from me just you know noodling around for my own benefit, really. So I I, I don't think. Well, I've not experienced it. I think it's quite rare for somebody to just have a fully formed idea. So I think whatever comes next is going to come from this kind of period of, yeah, creative meandering. I like nice. it. Nice. Love that as a phrase. That can That's... be the name of your next book. Creative meandering. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but mate, thanks so much. We'll um, we'll call it there. It's been uh, lovely to chat to you as always. Just before you go, Ben, if people want to find out uh, more about your book or where where can people go to sort of find out more about you and get hold of a copy of your book? Yeah, so the book is on Amazon. It's called Fringes, Life on the Edge of Professional Rugby. 
And my personal site, if you want to find out more about me, is www.benmercer.me. That's um, M-E-R-C-E-R. Nice. I recommend all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we'll chat again soon. Definitely. I feel like there's way more that I want to ask you. We need more than 25 minutes for this one. Yeah. It's um, there is loads to talk about. I, 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 and like when you looked into when I looked into the kind of process and the amount of learning I had to do around it, it's actually I do feel like I, I could bang on about it for a while. So yeah, feel free to have me back. Nice. All right. Cheers, Ben. We will. Cheers, guys. Thanks for having me. Bye. Pleasure.